0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Okay. Why don't you just dive in? What happens when a customer orders a surfboard? Where does the journey begin?
2: The journey, well, it begins in just by, by whom you pick to build your board. You're kind of opting in on uh, materials and construction. Now, if, if you're going to a handshaper or somebody that uses one of the CNC machines, and whether those finished blank products are going to be glassed at a contract glass shop or in-house, that all is going to determine you know, the look, feel, Cosmetics and the strength of the of the finished board, because each has their own strengths and weaknesses. Okay. So, by and large, like when you talk to uh, Greg Marks recently, this whole thing about a contract glass shop is is kind of relatively new, and it goes back to probably when you know he started in the in the early '80s, Waterman's Guild. Before that, most most places had their own in house thing. Like Greg Knoll, in his heyday, when he had his place in the South Bay, he blew his own blanks, had his own factory for shaping, made their own blanks, had their own glassing in-house, their own distribution area. They did everything on a big scale. But I think with the under the influence of the backyard board and uh, the way that shaping kind of started to get divorced, shapers started to specialize in what they did and glassers specialized what they did. By the time you see some of these contract glass shops popping up in California in the 80s, and by contract means it's just, they just take glassing in from everybody, big guys, little guys, and they and they do a job. Um Most of them were pretty good because at that size in California, with the you know punitive regulations and fire zoning and all the other stuff that you have to comply with, they were the first people to hit the tripwire and they had to do it so usually i don 't imagine there's that many contract glass shops that are kind of flying under the radar as they say, so not in California, yeah, not in California, yeah. <laughs> So that, so that's so. What, who you pick your board to make will determine what the materials, what type of foam they use, and and that's kind of good to ask about. And if you can't ask a salesman or a shaper uh, something about that and get honest answers, you probably should go somewhere else.
1: What are some key questions that you should be asking as a consumer?
2: Well, what 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 type of foam? And uh, if you ask a question and say, well, I've heard so and so down at the local beach break say that. Super blue or this, and if you get somebody that is not willing to give you information on that, and you know, with any kind of knowledge, you know, you know, you're not in the right place. So you should be asking about the foam, and you should have some input in the glass scheduling. And you, and if you feel intimidated to even ask, like, well, what does it mean? I want a board that's strong. And if someone says, well, strong means this, and you, know, you might get other opinions on it too. Hopefully, that's what this broadcast will do: is educate people so they can they're not falling prey to myth and and old wives' tales. Right. But basically, it's about being free to ask questions and not feeling stupid to ask questions or feel intimidated or feel browbeaten because uh, you, should, you should know what goes into your boards and what materials and where it's being glassed. and, and But you, you should have also done your homework based on word of mouth or reviews of, of the type of board and where it's glassed you know, in the first place.
1: I would like to think that with the basic information that we're providing through this, that they would then have enough information to know that the shapers either qualified to answer the questions or not right like like you were saying a lot of shapers or glassers do things by rote right they don't know why they do it some and of the time management too okay maybe yeah yeah for
2: yeah. me I, I spend 90 percent of my time answering these questions by email or other way that I just feel it's my duty not just customer service but to educate people and to me, when I actually get to go in and spend 90 minutes shaping a regular, you know, shortboard out of PU, it's a holiday. Because the rest of the time is all just correspondence. Right. And But I choose to do that. I don't have to. I could just have these, like, terse one-line things like, oh, do it in s glass," or, oh, this I mean, but I want to educate the public.
1: Yeah. Welcome back to the show. This is episode two of On Boards with Dave Parmenter, a four-part series with episodes released every Wednesday in October. Thank you for the feedback from part one. A lot of people are inquiring about my PSV, which is a paddle surf vehicle that Dave Parmenter makes. It is the only board I have from Dave and the board that's really opened up more surfing options for me than any other board in my quiver. So I'm gonna spend a little bit of time at the end of this episode detailing that board and my experience riding it just to get it all out of the way so I don't have to send 12 different direct messages to various people in today's episode parmenter is going to detail some of the health concerns with working with foam and the environmental concerns he'll get into the discussion about imported boards the pros and the cons he'll also explain how to maximize strength in a surfboard both from what the shaper can do as well as what the laminator can do to make the board last longer and feel fresher for longer which of course is um, the biggest thing you can do in regard to conservation. If you're not breaking boards regularly and not ordering new ones, that is a big conservation effort. And then in part three of this series, we will start layering in conversations with laminators to get their expertise on different types of resin and cloth, different glassing schedules, health concerns, etc., If you listen to part one, then you're aware that we're going to be giving away a Channel Islands rocket-wide built-in Spine Tech this month. This show is listener-supported, so as a thank you for your support, every donor will be entered to win this surfboard. I'll copy and paste all of the donor names into a random name generator app on November 1st, and then one person will win this specific surfboard. I'll put you in contact with Channel Islands, and then they'll provide the board to your specs, and you will only be responsible for the shipping costs. Pretty rad of them to do this for us. I've actually been riding the Rocket Wide for the past couple of weeks, and I got it after doing that episode on the Groveler surfboard design. I've been riding Roger Hines' Fish all summer and absolutely loving it. And then when I went to the BSR Cable Park in Waco, I just rented a high-performance shortboard and it kind of um, gave me the itch to just go vert and add a tiny bit of pivot and rip-ability to my surfing without really going for a full, skinny shortboard where I'd have issues paddling. Um, so I saw the Godowskis brothers riding the Rocket Wide in a couple of promo videos that they had put out. They were ripping, of course. And then I talked to Alex Gray, and he was just saying that the Rocket Wide has been his favorite board that he's had in a while. So I pulled the trigger. Turns out I love the board. I've ridden it maybe 10 times or so in the last month. Um, I just got a stock one from Channel Islands. It wasn't custom made. They say to order it three inches shorter than your height. So I got the 5'9 nine by 19 and 3 quarters by 2 and 9 16 with a swallow tail and a 5 future fin box setup. Although I've only ridden it with a tri-fin setup. And I've, I've been loving it. It's been working really well for me. The waves have been good so I've been riding it in good, you know, moderate to good surf mostly, kind of shoulder high surf, uh, beach breaks around Orange County. And I ordered it in a polyurethane and polyester resin construction. But your rocket wide that you could potentially win through this giveaway is gonna be built in Spine Tech, which is an EPS blank, but rather than a stringer, they embed a composite spine on the deck along with a couple of carbon strips. The idea is that the Spine Tech replicates the quote, feel of traditional PU construction, that frequency that Britt Merrick was talking about in our last episode. But it retains resilience freshness and pop for longer it retains that stuff indefinitely so basically the materials don't really break down as quickly as traditional constructed boards do so specifically the spine tech is a two pound density eps foam core with the spine tech composite stringer embedded into the deck along with fused unidirectional carbon tape on either side of that spine one layer of warp glass, one layer of e-cloth on the deck. So that's two layers of glass. There's no composite spine on the bottom that is only on the deck of the board, but it does have two strips of woven unidirectional carbon tape along the bottom, and then a four ounce e-glass cloth on the bottom. So two layers of cloth on the deck, one layer of cloth on the bottom, and then it's glassed with Entropy Super Sap Epoxy Resin, which is a bio-based resin. We will get into those cloth details and the resin details in part three of this series next week. I have images and video of the Spine Tech Board being ridden by Bobby Martinez, Sebastian Zietz, and others on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. It's also where you can support this show and be entered to win the board if you haven't already. Any and all donors will be entered to win. Thank you to everyone who signed up in this past week. Your support will go a long way. To supporting future episodes, and it's actually gonna get me out of my SoCal centric bubble. I'll be recording a few episodes in Hawaii this month. I'll also be doing an East Coast series next month, and then hoping to plan an Australian trip for next year. I've started to talk with actually the um, inventors of the Spine Tech technology, reached out. And they've got connections with board builders, of course, all over Australia. So I'm planning to put that together. And that's all due to your support of this show. So endless thanks for that. Really excited with um, all the conversations that will be coming up in future shows. But back to today's show. When we left off part one, Dave was discussing how Pat Rawson's blank model designs for Clark foam yielded, quote, close tolerance blanks and that allowed for shapers to do a lot less planar work if they selected the right blank that best fit their intended surfboard design and then glued it up with the right rocker. The shaper could then focus their time and energy on refining the details of their surfboard design. Further, because the skin of the blank is harder, it allowed the boards to be stronger and allowed laminators to change their glassing schedule, glass the boards lighter, and still yield the same amount of strength. Here's more about what that meant for shapers of that era. Again, 1992 to 1994.
2: Well, if you were a working shaper at the time, going from, <clears throat> like, say, the late 80s and early 90s to when those blanks became available, it was just, a, it was a sea change. Right. And, it, and a lot of people didn't cotton onto it for a long time, too. People still kept, there was, there. Gordon Clark was pretty angry with the, some production shapers that were too lazy or didn't want to order the right blanks and they would just get used to using a certain blank that it might be like a big fun board blank that they just were used to using and they would attack it efficiently and quickly and been able to render say like a slater type shortboard out of it and they and but they would they would do that and then they would overshape it so much that the board would just be weak mm-hmm. and it would be it would d easy and that's that's the important thing that the thing that I really want to Stress about this is that most of the time, if a if a customer or a surfer has problems with a board uh, with strength, it's or with delams and dents and everything like that, it is the shaper's fault. It is not the glassers. Very few glassers, I would say, cut corners that much. Although there are there are ways that do it that weaken boards, but most the glassers always get grief for it. Say, oh yeah, these guys glass my board. It's not strong. It dented on the first time. But it's, it's usually a lot of times it's Shaper's fault.
1: I want to get back. I know we're really focusing on materials, but let me ask again. Why do you need a hundred different, couple hundred different rocker options in a given blank?
2: Well, you, you know what? It, the, the amount of rocker, separate rockers you have, either secret or public, for a given blank will tell you the story. Almost all of them are in shortboard blanks. The ones with the hundreds are on the shortboard blanks have the heavy hits on them for performance surfing and those boards obviously are more sensitive they're they're more prone to imitation so they they just they're more sensitive to these this this kind of these changes these rocker configurations now you go start looking at the fun board blanks or some of the long board blanks or the blanks that aren't used that much and you won't see as many but the the key thing with the with the shorter ones, too, is in all blank rockers is it's not just a measurement. like you don't if you look at a blank and say it has measured from the middle or wherever people measure it with a straight edge, if it's five inches in the nose and two inches in the tail, that's not, that's not, not just a rocker. There could be a hundred different ways that you get there. The configuration of the rocker is more important than the measurement. Some rockers peak, the apex peaks way back under your stance like the almeric short boards key ingredient of those boards and then there's other ones where it's more in the center the classic island thing long boards tend to peek back you know the old fashioned nose rider type thing so it's how those rockers are configured and so a lot of times you see those that's where those those incremental things are in the you know the variances are in the rocker
1: the the adjustments can be made from anywhere between the center of the board to the nose that could be made from in the last six inches of the nose that could be made in the last yeah and that's just if
2: you ask to to have the rocker pulled from a center point which is just kind of it doesn't really all that that is is a it's kind of a, a an accepted static point because it's not really the center of where the rocker should be when you surf on the board right it's just it's just that we get enough data from that, that it starts to mean something to us as we talk about. It. Some people measure it in different places, like where the apex of the rocker is. And there's all these different, everybody has their own thing, but it only means something to the shaper or the boor- or the foam manufacturer if you have enough of those numbers rigidly controlled, where right. you get a database on it. But the, the rocker is a, is a key thing because it, 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 it changed like how incremental it used to be. One, we didn't even really understand until fairly late in surfboards, like the late, late 70s early 80s that rocker was a key component of design and then how to control it the, i mean the, the tolerances were maybe more like half an inch or something now they're down to like you know 32nd of an inch or something when you start talking about pro level surfboards made by guys that use really exacting you know cnc machines you know you get guys like um you know eric Harkall and stuff that really understand that they they're able to do these these you know, infinitesimal changes from board to board, and maybe the, they'll give ten boards to a pro or something. And these pros are like Princess and the P; they can feel things that you and I don't feel. They ride these very sensitive boards day in and day out, and they can tell things. And that's why you start to see some of those guys using the you know volume measurements too, which is an offshoot of shaping machines. Because at that level of surfing, they're so Princess and the P that they can feel everything. Right. But the but that rocker revolution is is kind of was a key thing because it's. You know, it came kind of from Brewer and the understanding that Rocker was a key driver. And then, you know, I would say Parrish took it to the next level and then Barnfield took it from there. And then Rusty took it from there to so, like being able to use it incrementally, engineer it and also have a, you know, a, a quantitative type of engineering thing of taking measurements all the time so that you have a, a, a database you know of all this. So that it starts to mean something instead of just looking cool in a shaping room measuring the rocker.
1: Right. In part one, we had discussed how polyurethane foam blanks are made available to shapers in six densities. A lot of high-performance shortboard pros are riding the lightest weight boards because they're light and fast. Toe-in boards are heaviest density by a factor of about 300% but density isn't the only thing that matters in polyurethane foam. And again, keep in mind, we're talking strictly about polyurethane foam right now, often referred to as PU. EPS or expanded polystyrene is an alternative type of foam. You'll hear people mistakenly refer to it as epoxy. Epoxy is a resin used in lamination, but EPS is the foam type. Dave and I get into that later. But right now we're discussing polyurethane foam, which is far and away the most common foam for surfboard manufacturing. Dave explained to me that density is only one characteristic of polyurethane foam. There are other things to consider.
2: Yeah, well, one, one good way to do it is it's, you know, polyurethane foam is a cellular structure. There's air surrounded by like a wall of this, of this you know plastic material, resin. Uh, EPS, like, uh, which is an expanded polystyrene or bead foam, It has these smelted beads with air communicating around it and that's why you have problems with those boards with when if if you breach them and they're not watertight anymore water can get by the vacuum principle can run through the entirety of the board really quick it'll get sucked in that doesn't really happen so much with polyurethane but the cellular nature of it is like all these little watertight compartments it takes quite a long time and being under in a vacuum of its own skin to like really leach it in Um, and i know that's a little off topic there but it's uh you know it's an important thing about how these boards are you can leave you can leave like in hawaii where they make eps uh the bead foam that we all know like for beer coolers or you know surfboards they leave these huge slabs out in the weather in the rain they don't soak up a bit of water but you put them in a skin and they become a vac you know that creates a vacuum and uh that's one of the things that with all surfboards that people have to realize that it's they go through all these compression and decompression cycles all the time. You take a board out of your car, whether it's EPS epoxy or polyurethane and polyester, and it's 90, 100 degrees in your car, you throw it in 55 degree water here in California, and it just it contracts. And so that means it's sucking air and water into the core anywhere it can find. It could be just a glass roving, a pin air, anything, like a little void near your fin box. And, and then it gets hot again and gasses out pulls in, sucks, contracts, expands, contracts, and it does that, so I, what I call like, I, um, it's kind of like a uh, uh, heat fatigue almost. The boards will go and get fatigued by how many times they, you know, it's like an aircraft. They can only go through so many flex cycles of expanding and contraction, you know, before you start maybe losing the bond of your skin to the foam.
1: You talked about pouring the blank polyurethane foam being like a cake batter, what is polyurethane foam?
2: Well, we, it's a uh, it's a type of resin. Um, they, there's all the, if you go to each manufacturer, there's all these different formulas. So there are, and I'm not sure the chemical composition of that. I can talk more about the like the resins that you glass the boards with. But everybody has their own formulas, and there's a lot of uh, builders. There's a lot of foam companies that have really good formulas and good foam, but maybe they don't have the the plugs. You know the, the blank shape themselves as good as say like a U.S. blanks or something like the, and uh, you know maybe they're more crude or They don't have the amount, the, the sheer number of them, or maybe they don't have the service in your area to get you blanks glued up. But there's a lot of good formulas. Like some of the Aussie foams, or like there's there are some good formulas out there, and they're based on people that with proprietary mixing of these chemicals and what they use and how they counter countermand like those problems you're talking about voids and consistency and everything like that so do we want to talk about um
1: the i don't know health concerns with the materials
2: sure we can do that
1: environmental concerns with those materials with polyurethane themselves and i know obviously that was you kind of alluded to it with gordon clark um meeting all the epa regulations and that sort of stuff but what are the health concerns working with polyurethane well
2: one one thing i remember reading my friend um, dr mark renecker sent me this study from doctors it was like a you know a good peer review study about health hazards in the surfboard industry and you know it's not what you think it was really i mean with with normal precautions um you know probably the main thing are some really like the real gnarly bad actors are acetones. Which you know go into your skin really easily, uh, go into your kidneys and or liver, and um, but then dust is, the, is probably one of the worst things. And then there's the what's, the
1: what's the issue with dust?
2: Dust is bad. It's just it, it's a predictor for morbidity and mortality everywhere. It doesn't matter where you're living in a hut in the Sudan with you know firewood smoke. Any type of fine particle that goes into your lungs, whether it's sterile or toxic. It's just bad news.
1: There's no way to get it out.
2: Yeah. Well, your your lung flushes like tons of water through your lungs every day to get rid of it but it's just not people don't live as long when they have to deal with particulate matter in their lungs so to to answer so to answer that to why it's probably not as bad as people think if you look at all our original board builders now like yours dale velzies i mean he died recently but um it was from other things you have greg knoll you have uh, a lot of these guys that are you know rennie yader and Gordon Quigg and all these guys they were building you know Boston some of those wood dusts were the worst and they're just sitting there with no mass or anything so anyway what I'm saying is there's people that have been working in this industry not always with the best industrial hygiene for a long time and around these chemicals and you don't have these big spikes of chronic degenerative diseases you know cancer you just don't have it I mean that kind of tells a certain story but anyway this one study they were saying other than the dust which you can mitigate with industrial hygiene and in suction fans and everything, is that one of the things is the styrene? The styrene monomer—it's its an it's a element of the resin. It was when that evaporates from the resin, you get stoned. So that's that. So when you put your board in a car or a new board and it has that kind of real acrid acrid smell, that's the styrene evaporating from it. And we'll get into that a little bit because that's about, you know, that comes into uh, under the heading about how resins cure. But those you you notice when people that work around that without really good rest, masks and respirators is they they get stoned and they get forgetful. So, I mean, I've seen guys working with it and they'll drive down the street and forget where they're going or come back. Yeah. And but whether it's toxic, you know, long term, I don't All I can say is that people have worked with this stuff a long time and uh I would say the acetones are probably like those types of things the VOCs you hear about like evaporating styrene and acetones and probably you know obviously resins those VOCs being volatile organic compounds that everybody's trying to you know eradicate from the air that's an environmental thing too but this is the uh, Surfboards have a really nasty isocyanate called TDI that makes it, like what Gordon would say, the Cadillac of foams. Um, that is a known, uh, like toluene, it's one diisocyanate or something like that. I forget the name of it, but that is a bad actor. Um, probably more for the manufacturer side of it. When it's in, when it, when the surfboard is, by the time you're dealing with it as a shaper, it's you know it's inert and. Their Clark Foam had all their hazardous material stuff that they had to have for OSHA and the fire department and all that. And most of the stuff was just presented as like it would really be nothing more than ground-up dinner plates or something, sure. plastic, you know, polyurethane. And, but in the manufacture of it, so you are using these things. Everything that we, all our wetsuits, all our surfboards, doesn't matter how, unless it's one of these really uh, experimental green environmental surfboards, they all come out of the same oil well and so with surfboards i kind of would take the 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 same stance that Yvonne chenard has always taken where he just says well i can't be an environmentalist i can only be a conservationist so if i'm going to use these resources that i'm going to make the best thing and i can it's going to last as long as i can so i think that's kind of our marching orders in the surfboard trade. i mean we have to if we're going to use these tr- these materials to make surfboards which hopefully make us all better people and maybe make us less consuming on another aspect of life because we are enlightened with what these surfboards bring to us in our relationship with the ocean then let's just make them as best we can
1: make them last as make long them last
2: understand and then try to and then definitely support people that are pushing into uh, veggie based or soy based epoxies and different types of cloth because of the, if we could get off of all that stuff it'd be fantastic but there are a lot of fantastic materials i've seen some biofoams that I've used, and I know there's some really groundbreaking materials that are being used that are you know, much less you know having less just environmental impact. but you know the customer just won't accept cosmetics issues. I wish they would. If yeah. they would you know accept some of some of that less than you know perfect cosmetics and surfboards, we'd probably be better off. You also talked initially
1: about um, polyurethane foam just being great to work with as a shaper. And we're all familiar with it, and that's why we continue to use it. But it seems to be also just as a surfer, it's a feel that we're also very familiar with.
2: Yeah, and, and it's really, uh, who can quantify that? It, but can't. it just does, it exists. It's just something. I think, you know, here's, here's the thing. I think what it is, I was thinking about this the other day, and it's possible that it, with a polyurethane core, uh, with the density of it and the cellular nature and having this stringer there, uh, the way it's glassed, it, you're riding you feel like you're riding more of the core. when you're on, like say, a super lightweight polystyrene board that is very insubstantial core with, and then you you tend to put a lot more like the glass schedules on some of those uh, if I do a really light EPS or other polystyrene board, if it's like a one pound blank or something like that density you're putting way more skin on it. You might be doing four layers of S glass or, or, and two on the bottom, and maybe three on the deck. So maybe when you're surfing those, you're, you feel like you're riding more of the fuselage or the skin because that's where really the, the throw weight of that is. You know, when a board is at rest, it's one thing, but it's hard for a lot of surfers because we're all different abilities and surf different ways to quantify what happens when a surfboard's in motion and how that, you know, that momentum Newtonian physics translates, and especially when you start climbing and dropping, and the board—polyurethane with a stringer—Brewer used to say it was like you—you th- know—it was like throwing a spear or something, and you kind of follow it. Other boards that are super light, it's more like th- throwing a saltine into the wind. You know, it's light, but it doesn't doesn't have that carry, and so that some of that might be the feeling that we crave for people that grew up on PU and polyester.
1: Yeah, it's a good analogy.
2: Surf—we should talk about surfboard strength, but talking about that. We established that in my opinion or my estimation or my experience that overshaping is the number one cause of faulty you know, boards that, are, that fall apart. But we need to also, one of the problems I have is talk, in talking to people is they say, I want to do this glass schedule, this foam because I want my board strong. And then I just reply, well, what type of strength are you talking about? Because there's two main types of strength that surf, surfers deal with. Okay. One is like the compound or impact strength that you deal with like knee dents and, you know, delams and, and dings and things like that. And the other is the tensile or shear strength of having a board buckle, twist, snap, whatever, like somehow something breaks. Two different types of strengths. And what's interesting is that people that are, have less experience or maybe they're beginners, they tend to have more problems with boards denting or dinging, things like that, things that actually will impact the board from impact because they're just not, they don't have the experience yet, right? Whereas really good or performance-minded surfers accept that as a given that boards are gonna do that because they abuse them, and they're more concerned about snapping boards. So the engineering precepts on that in a foam sandwich construction are that you have a core, and an, as an engineering beam, if you had a, a certain length and width and thickness of that core, the, the main thing that's gonna keep that board from actually snapping in half when put under load is going to be the thickness of that board so if you had it for example if you had an aerospace engineer come in and say you guys are breaking all these boards like we can solve that for you and they just say well, all you need to do is make all the boards five inches and then you'd say no we write them at two inches like, you guys are crazy you can't do it it's just you're already on a flawed structure and so the number one thing is is that thickness so on that so if you have a lightweight foam core the thickness is the most important thing when you when you put the glass and the resin on on top of that foam structure and it permeates into there and there's a bond the the next important thing is apart from the you know the weight and quality of that core itself like how much it will deflect under load or bend is the bond and by bond i mean the, your skin or your fiberglass skin how that bonds with the resin to the foam too little and you do this thing like you do a peel test, where if you've ever seen a broken board that was, say, airbrushed or done in a contract glass job where they've really sped up the laminations, if you can peel the resin off a broken board and no foam comes off with it, then there's no bond. On the other hand, you can have too much of a bond where it, it goes too deep and you just get like a heavy, weak board because there's, the resin's gone too deep. And then you pull it and foam just comes up. What you want is just the right amount of bond on there. So. The bond and, and enhancing that bond is a huge overlooked aspect of surfboard strength when it comes to the tensile strength or shear strength. The, the next thing is the um, the way that, that, that so when a board when a board starts to if you had a, a super slow motion like GoPro on a board that went out of pipeline and you could somehow watch that board break, what you would see is it would bend would start to be under load and it's usually at the end of a leash. Leashes break more boards than anything because you just anchor it and the board just is basically like put under an industrial press. So you'd see that board twist, you see a lot of board broken boards with that twisted cleavage and it would, one side of the, the fiberglass on, one, on the deck and the same exact side the spot on the bottom side, one, one side of the glass has to expand, the other one kind of has to contract So what you see is you start to see in slow motion this crimp and it's like a little buckle where the glass, the bond fails. Your bond of the skin to the core fails and then it's done. Like even if the board survives that and doesn't snap, it's really, it's a totally compromised structure. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find
1: quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs.
0: Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: Now the stringer are, was put into boards as a stiffener. It's not so much of a spine. It's not the be-all and end-all for strength. What it does is the bond of that resin and fiberglass over the stringer on both sides forms what we call an I-beam effect. So once, as long as that bond is there, you have this kind of an eye shape where the stringers, the vertical part of the eye, and then the, the cross parts in the top or bottom are those flanges of glass over that. That's kind of like a, a like a steel girder, right, an I beam. You get your strength from those extrusions. In other types of boards that don't have stringers, or even that do, you can kind of do that with enhancing or adding more fiberglass or carbon to a rail, and you get kind of like a C-beam. So it's that is a curved shape that keeps that like that, keeps it stiff. Um, the that's that's really kind of the you know one of the most important things right there is just is if you could enhance the bond on these things a lot so just like with the foam pour
1: for the blank there's inconsistencies based on environmental factors and or human factors is that to say that there's similar inconsistencies in the glass job where the bond if it just has one weak point in the bond somewhere along the entire board it's well, only as strong as its weakest When line. it's put under
2: load, the, the physics will just find a way. It will find a weak place on it, and that's why they always break on the deck. You know, they, they, they go down like that at the end of a leash. They push down, and one side of the board has to deflect one way, and the skin on the other one will usually give, like if it's it's on the deck. So you always see that kind of crimp. Now, so the, the whole foam sandwich construction strength comes from two, like, equidistant points on the deck and on the bottom of those places always being, right like, right there. So thicker is better. Obviously, for performance reasons, we can't do that. We probably save a lot of boards like that. But to get back to the strength thing, so people need to speak a common language about why they are getting... The, using the materials they're using and the glass schedules they're using and the resins they're using based on, first, we don't even always agree or address what type of strength we're talking about. Right. The other thing is people say, well, I'm really heavy on my decks. I have, you know, my bony feet or I, or I duck dive a lot and I want, um, you know, put all this like fancy carbon fiber on the tail. And it's like, well, again, it'll, it, it'll stiffen up the board somewhat, but if the underlying foam has been overshaped that you could put titanium there and it doesn't matter what whatever's underneath it you built it on you know you built your house on sand it's just sooner or later it's going to give and then you've just wasted 40 bucks on a carbon inlay same with power rods and strips down the center and everything all you're doing is adding stuff that could probably be best addressed in the use judicious use of the stringer and not overshaping
1: right um what materials, we're talking about bond. Obviously, we can't have the conversation without really discussing different types of cloth and then also different types of resin.
2: You know, it's it's for one thing, most of the resins we use, polyester resins, are just cheap casting resins. They're used because they're available and everybody knows how to use them and they're easy to use. And they, um, they're they a thermosetting resin, meaning that you have to add a hardener to them, like a catalyst. And so the, the chemical chain is that, so what you do is you, picture like a ladder on its side and the the long chain resin mo- molecules form the two ladder sides there and then the, the styrene the styrene monomer which is you know being a chemical component of the resin those are like the rungs of the ladder
1: okay
2: now when when you get the right amount of catalyst or hardener in there it sets off a thermal reaction that kind of that polymerizes or hardens that syrupy resin into you know that hard plastic that we know and love but as the resin starts to harden or cure, that, that styrene will evaporate, that styrene monomer. So this allows those rungs of that chemical ladder to like crimp and cram closer together. And so the vapors that, that you smell are from that styrene monomer. That, that a lot of times, you know, when a board's curing or you put it in your car, those... But what happens is, so as the board's getting harder, it's, it's really an evaporation thing. One of the I remember addressing a question sometime from some writers, readers that were writing into the swell.com thing, was this whole thing about oh I got to let my surfboard cure, like oh it's green you know it's I'm going to let it cure for a month and so I went and talked to like all the experts in the field, and uh, they they just said you know actually the freshly glass surfboard curing is really just about all the unnecessary styrene evaporating from the resin and it removes the weaker molecules. And lets that rungs on that like symbolic ladder tighten up and make the resin get stronger and harder so this the curing process takes a lot less than you'd think so if with the right catalyst um, and the right a- ambient heat like the workplace so if you they say if you catalyze the re- the resin with the standard, what they recommend is a one and a half percent catalyzation radio and and room temperature of like seventy eight degrees which the resin manufacturers say is optimum the you know, this freshly glassed board will be 98% cured in one and a half weeks, months? No, hours. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hours. So, you know, like I always said, surfboard's not a ham. You don't hang it up and wait for it to cure. But they say, the, to show how, to illustrate how important that, that ambient or workplace temperature is, is that if the temperature was, say, 10 degrees lower at 68 degrees, the optimum cure might take anywhere from two to seven days. So they they'd love that that heat. There's like definitely a uh, you know, a mercurial planet type thing. And it's funny because that tells too hot. not too hot, but that tells me a funny story about Greg Martz, because we used to have this thing called Kook in a glass shop where we'd field questions about what happens when land levers go into glass shops and blow it and just screw up and damage something. And he told me this one where he had a guy coming back to him with a brand new board. Swore he hadn't ridden it, and the board had all these. It almost looked like it had the pox. It had all these like little bubbles all over it. And Greg was going, "Ah, that's not from here." And so with Greg, like putting pressure on him, which probably might have had some arm twisting involved, the guy finally admitted that he wanted to cure it, so he'd put it in his heated water bed for a couple of days. And oh so the boor- whole board just blistered up and everything like that. So, wow. so that's that's a great illustration of that. Um, Of that myth with curing so there's really i mean i've had boards that i worked with with greg mungle fantastic craftsman where we built the entire board in 18 hours and i wrote it the next day in competition i still have those boards they're Mm. fine they're they're not like dented or anything like that
1: well you just gave ratios and kind of um conditions for um polyester resin yeah that's not our only option in resin, right? No,
2: but there, within the polyesters, there's there, like there's a couple different type of resins. There's the, uh, you know, isothalic and the orthothalic resins. Like, there's the um, the uh, the orthothalic resin is kind of the one that everybody uses. It's kind of the standard. It's cheaper, easier to use. But a lot of people use the isothalic, which is a better quality. And then there's another type of of. Uh, it's, I don't even know if you could call it a polyester resin. It's a vinyl ester, and some board builder builders like Rennie Yader have always used that. Hmm. People, they're, So it's not like you have to jump straight to epoxy. Um,
1: why would you use one versus the other? Why would you use poly- or, yeah, polyester. polyester, and why would you use epoxy?
2: <coughs> well, one of the things, epoxies, um, especially a lot of the ones we use in, in surfboard construction, they are, they don't have the fumes. They're better for the environment, but there is a problem with the... Uh, epoxy molecules are like toxic to people there's you hear about people getting sensitive to it you get an epoxy sensitivity and then you're you're out of there you're done you can't so you that, can't work with it anymore
1: that's actually a confusion for me is i feel like when i first started hearing about epoxy it was that it was actually safer
2: for the environment but maybe not but for, not the for humans yeah got it yeah but that some of that's contact too so if with good industrial hygiene there's no reason why you can't work with anything, really, but, but surfers don't always do that. They're not always dressed in, you know, CDC hazmat yeah, you know, th- and rubber gloves, and they work around it. But I've heard a lot of people that have been worked around epoxies, if you work around them a long time, and I know that some of the in the overseas plants, I've heard apocryphal stories of people, you know, developing a sensitivity, and they get it rotated into something else. You know, they yeah. can't work with it anymore, and it's a, and it's a real thing, too. People don't. get pretty sick from it. So from a performance standpoint, um,
1: why would you use an epoxy on a surfboard? The,
2: the main, well, a lot of people will tell you that they're stronger, but once again, we're taking just one component of this composite structure, the resin, what about the glass? What, you know, what about the fiberglass? What about the foam? The main reason why it's used is that it does not dissolve polystyrenes. So when, when some surfboard builders abdicated from the the polyurethane polyester model of making boards they started using eps but polyester resins will literally dissolve it like you're putting lava on it you know that just becomes a solvent
1: so you cannot glass an eps foam with polyester
2: well you can if you're like someone like greg mungle because you would seal it with something they have different things like you could seal it with elmer's glue or some of these they have some of these new styro shield things that it's possible to do you know like on an industrial level you can people use uh, eps's for building facades or you know movie sets but there, there are ways to do it but it's not not really done in the surfboard industry yeah. so
1: the epoxy resin can be used you can on use it EPS yeah it's totally compatible with
2: polystyrenes yes got it
1: but you could also use epoxy resin on a polyurethane blank
2: absolutely well. and some people do i've I've worked with epoxies on my own for my own projects, and obviously with stand-up boards and everything's like that. And for me, from my level of being kind of a cook when it comes to glassing, I, I've, they're, they're problematic to use for me. They, they have way? to be measured. Well, they have to be met. The, the ratios of your hardeners to the, the resin the main resin itself—has to be measured, like you know, with actual measuring, you know, with or weight. Actually, they have—they do it by weight. It's you know, it's like baking bread or something. It's very persnickety um they are affected cure rates are affected by temperature a lot the and pot lifes vary for me i mean i've had i mean i'm i'm talking as a amateur here not as like what a professional do but the you can mix it up and it can go off on you faster but of course any resin can and sometimes then sometimes it would never cure for me but of course that's not like for professionals but um the other thing is that they um i've known some of my glassers too it's they don't have a shelf life as as long you get them in smaller batches because they'll eventually all resins will just harden on their own but epoxies seem to be fairly problematic there um but i but for some boards you know i would i would just rather use a re- it just worries me for me personally this is just opinion it's not this isn't scientific fact like a lot of this other stuff working with epoxies doesn't, it's nice to have some of the ones that you don't have to work with a mask, but I just, the contact sensitivity and just, um, I've always been leery of that. And I would, I would always rather go with using a better foam and better, you know, like using a really good high grade, like good flat weave, four and a half ounce direct size S glass as your, because that's the main thing. Resin is the weakest link in a surfboard. In this composite structure, in the foam sandwich construction, it is the weakest link. It is just dead weight, and what you want is the, the the greatest amount of more cloth than resin. You want that. You want your fiberglass cloth to be wetted out, not dry. You know, dry. You know, you don't want it sopping wet and, and over and oversaturated, but you don't want it dried out, so where you can see the glass. But ultimately, the strength is in the glass, not the resin.
1: Do you have enough experience writing epoxy oh, yeah. resin boards sure. to identify what the differences are from a performance but see, standpoint? But that's a great... Water.
2: So you just hit it, epoxy boards. You're not writing an epoxy board. No,
1: but the epoxy resin boards.
2: That's not the... That is way down the list on on the active ingredients on... So, okay. like, what kind of epoxy board? Like, epoxy is just the resin. What kind of core are we talking about? What but is it, there a stringer in it? Is it EPS? Is it one pound, two pound? But if you add yeah. the same exact blank stringer... Fiberglass, one glass with epoxy,
1: one glass with polyester. Can you tell the difference between those With the those same two glass, glass
2: schedule and every everything? Same I glass wouldn't f- be able to tell a difference. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. No.
1: Just in that one variable, is there any performance difference is all I'm trying to kind of get at.
2: No, I think this, the conventional wisdom is that they properly um, use are stronger. They also do good in, um, in a lot of other applications, too. And this is why they're popular, too, is that they are... Um, well, for one, they they do better if they're baked, too. You, like most people would say epoxies really need to be put in uh, you know, in a, a hot in water a, in a, in bed. No, not a <laughs> hot water bed. So that's one thing. And they also do really good with vacuum bagging and pre-pregs and things like that. Like okay. where, where you have cloth like in other, like in aerospace industry or cars or pl- or boats or whatever. They 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 do are good, but but for surfboards, what I'm I'm not arguing against epoxies because you need them for certain types of structures like stand-up boards or paddle boards. Um, and you know, like the canoes that I paddle they they just are they just have a certain properties for certain types of constructions that may or may not be best for our two and a quarter inch thick six one by eighteen inch shortboards right um there's I just think I would spend the money on other things got it first because okay. that's that it's really more about the 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 entire uh Construct and how all those different parts of it, the materials, mesh together. It's not, the resin is the weakest link in that.
1: Got it. So, on the journey of um, ordering a surfboard, where, yeah. do, where so, do we go from there?
2: Well, like your blank is shaped, has your order card pinned to it, it goes to a glass shop. The first thing that's done is it's laminated. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this nowadays because everybody's getting back into using pigments. Now, by pigments, a lot of people say resin tints, which is confusing for me because someone says they want a blue tint. I have to say, well, a pigment is a tint, but within that there's opaque, which you can't see through, and then there's tint, which is transparent. So I guess the the classification would be that they're pigments with this subclassification is there's tints and opaques, but a lot of people call them tints. If your board is gonna have a pigment used in it, which means there is a, you know, it's a coloring that you add a very minute amount to in the laminating resin when your board is laid up. That will determine whether your board in the lamination, meaning the glass, the fiberglass cloth that is wrapped around the the raw blank, is taped off or free lapped. Now free lapping is where you just, the guys, if the board's gonna be clear, they cut the glass over the board they trim around the edges and without really any really clean taped off border, because you don't need to on a clear board. The resins are so clear, the glasses are so clear, and the foam's so white that you won't see the lap too, too well.
1: You won't see any seams. You won't
2: see a seam. But with, with, when you start pigmenting it, you need to tape off that edge. And later when the resin starts to cure and set enough, you take a razor blade and cut it. And everybody has their own method. Greg did a great job of describing how he does it. You know, is cut. that's called a cut lap or a cut line, and those are hard to do. It's a lost art, it's coming back, it's great to see it again. Now, the um, the boards, the first layer, the board is on the laminating rack, it's a little higher than a regular rack that a board would be shaped or sanded on because the laminator needs to use a squeegee to, to wet out the resin onto the rail, so they need to have it a little higher. The the first layer of glass is laid out over that blank. It's trimmed. The resin is do poured on it. Do you do
1: the deck first or the bottom? No, the first? bottom is
2: the bottom is done first. The bottom is done. The first. bottom goes first.
1: Is there a reason why?
2: Yeah, but it's just the way the layers come together. So normally, but sometimes if uh, in pigments they'll, they'll do like what they call a reverse lap, where they have a, a main color come around from the deck onto the rails and onto the bottom. Where the normal panels are, you have a deck a bottom and deck color if it's pigmented but for the sake of just keeping it simple we're going to talk about just a clear board right now how a a clear board's done so So the bottoms first that cloth goes up down the rails from the bottom onto a, a certain everybody has different laps lines that they would use but usually it's a little bit past the shoulder of the rail on the deck you know so the cloth comes off a large roll and it's just a yeah. uh, rectangle shape, they pull enough to cover
1: the length of the board and then cut the sides so that it hangs how many inches over the rail?
2: It, it depends. Uh, like I said, some guys will do, th- that will overlap wider, so it's a little bit maybe stronger or maybe it's easier to feather in later, but, but by reducing that you get it a little bit lighter, but usually it goes up onto the shoulder of the rail, onto the deck, Okay. the first layer. So then, that, then they pour the resin, which they've added the catalyst to. And so
1: in a bucket. In a
2: bucket. They have a bucket of, add resin. of resin in the catalyst. And they, they pour that in there. It's mixed up. And then they start squeegeeing it nose to tail.
1: So the catalyst
2: hardens the resin. How yeah. much time do
1: they have
2: it depends. to work with and that's it? a depends. That's, that's a really good thing because it, it broaches the subject that I wanted to talk about. A lot of really good glassers really guys that have spent a lot of time laminating and um, you know, contract glassing shops where it, it really does pay for them to get those boards past tackiness to where the board sets up enough so that they can move them off the rack and do more because they work piecemeal most of them they get paid like a certain amount of money per board per lamination because um, they usually do have piecemeal in, in a shop like that how you get paid they will use other promoters in the resin to make it go off faster, they can do it with a shorter sh- pot life. The problem with that is a lot of those things that they do to promote a quicker cure, other than the catalyst, is that it will, um, it weakens the resin a little bit. So there is this kind of conventional wisdom that is is unique is that in sometimes amateur or intermediate level laminators can actually give you a better, stronger board because they can't they need a longer pot life to deal with all that. They need more time to saturate the cloth, work with contours, wrap that cloth around the rails, onto the deck, and then if anybody's ever done a board in their backyard, the, the bottom of the board, the flat surfaces are fun. The minute you start trying to get that resin, which is creeping like you know Mrs. Butterworth syrup, on the side of the rail and get it, and it's just dripping all over the place and all over your forearms and everything, and you're trying to wet out those laps that go onto the bottom, It's a nightmare, you know. Professionals, it's no big deal, but when you're just doing it, it's pretty hard. So
1: when your goal is to do it evenly as well, to
2: do it evenly and not get not make a mess of it to where maybe you're getting, you know, some sort of like overspray or something onto the deck, and I mean it it just turns into a mess. So so a lot of times the guys that aren't over promoting the resins and that need a longer pot life, will they take more time because they need that time, and so you don't have the resins resins that are maybe more brittle or weak, right? Uh, I know we're just talking about a clear, but
1: if you were using a colorant, does colorant do anything to, um, does that weaken the resin at all? Does it that change any of the structure? Or is it strictly Pigment,
2: a like theoretically, from what I've read, and I've been told it does, but it's, I think that's pretty infinitesimal compared to the other things that people use to promote resins. Okay. Because you're putting it a lot of times for, so if you're going to do an entire board, say opaque red, you know, like a really nice red red pigment you you have to mi- mix both sides so it's the same color in one bucket and then you pour the other you pour half of it into one bucket and then you catalyze that and you do the bottom that's like maybe can't be much more than, than half a tablespoon, teaspoon sorry it's like just a very little, a lot of times it's not that much pigment a
1: negligible amount of kind of compromising that's, that's of that that's
2: just opinion because sure. the, the, the science says that it does but it seems like for an overall stronger board, I think airbrushing's worse because when you airbrush a board to get color, you seal the foam, so you might have you'll have less absorption of the resin into the foam, so it lightens the board. But it's we go back to our peel ply thing where you don't have as good of a bond. You're, right. So it does it does take some of the weight off, but it but it mitigates the strength. You okay. know, in that in that bond. So. Of the two evils, if you're going to have a colored board, I think that, you know, know, pigment is probably going to be the least, you know, have the least effect on that.
1: Okay. So we've pulled the cloth over the bottom, saturated it with resin.
2: And now what? And then you wait for it to uh, harden enough. And that's one of the things about... So you wrap the cloth, though. Yeah. along
1: the rails. Yeah, you wrap it
2: along the rails and it would be onto a taped border if you were doing a cut line with a pigment and with a free lap for clear, it would just be, you would have cut it. Most guys can cut pretty good where it's not just like it's all over the place or anything like that. And then that's lapped up and then there's a, some very tricky work that you do at the nose and tails, especially with contours like swallowtails or uh, you know wings or things like that because the laminator has to have pre- kind of cut or notch some of the that spread of glass so that when he starts to wrap those things together they all just start folding in like a box you know like a it's just less overlap yeah they, they, everything has to notch together really good because you're, you're doing those overlaps on the nose and on swallowtails or on or on pintails even where you have folds overhanging glass that have to be lapped a lo- up into, onto each other with you know pretty much like a seamless kind of lap that doesn't it also doesn't affect it cosmetically too right. or later on if you when you go to trim it you don't find there's a void underneath it and there's like a bubble and there's foam so there's all those little technical things and I mean most people that are laminating you know these glass shops are really good and they just have that it's an art to them yeah you know like Greg Martz and all the guys like that they're just they can do it in their sleep
1: I hate to cut the conversation off, but the reason why I wanted to break this conversation into various episodes is that there is a lot of information to digest. So even just with editing part one, I listened back to it three or four times in the editing process and I picked up new information every time I listened to it. And I feel like I'm somebody who actually knows a little bit about surfboards, certainly from doing this show for the last few years, five years and i know dave and i've talked to dave a lot about surfboards i still picked up a lot of information in that one episode alone so i encourage you Take your time with these, Um, go back if you're interested, Listen listen to them more than once, and I think that you too will pick up new information, and also just give you something to look forward to each week. So I hope that you're enjoying it. We still have two episodes left, and as I stated, Greg Martz has glassed Dave's boards over the years. His son, Ryan Martz, has actually taken over the family business, the Waterman's Guild, in recent years. So I'll have Ryan chime in next week to explain some more information about glassing. And because everyone has their own techniques and methods, I'll also include insights from Doug Fletcher. He's the man at Santa Cruz Board Builders Guild. He glasses Travis Reynolds boards, Mark Andrini's, Doug Houts. Fletcher's got 40 years of experience, super great guy, and he'll just add a nice dimension to this chat. And then regarding my PSV from Parmentor, I'll post some images on surfsplendorpodcast.com and on Instagram at surfsplendor. I wanted to order a board from Dave and I had seen Stephanie Gilmore riding a six foot long channel bottom single fin in Andrew Kidman's film Spirit of Akasha. So I had Dave on the phone and I was debating that board but I was also hedging because I have a lot of six foot boards in my quiver And that board would kind of be ideal for a point break, but I don't really surf point breaks all that often. So it's hard to justify a brand new board expense, you know, a six foot board that I could surf a point break on, but I have a bunch of other six foot boards that would probably work really well on point breaks. So it's kind of hedging in my mind. And Dave um, kept pushing this idea of this PSV, which again is a paddle surf vehicle, this 12 foot long, almost five inch thick behemoth. It's akin to a prone paddleboard, but has some design elements that allow you to actually surf it. There's this hard edge that runs the entire length of the rail, a slight bevel underneath that edge, and then a bit of a roll in the bottom. Dave lives on the central coast where he has all his big balmy surf, these reef breaks that swells kind of push up against, and maybe the swells mush into a white water, but they have these big open face waves that wouldn't really be ideal to surf any other board on, but the PSV works great in that type of surf. But I, on the other hand, live in Orange County, where it's mostly beach breaks, mostly a lot of crowds. Plus, my car doesn't really have 12 feet of clearance to hold that board, so I'd have to put racks on if I were to order it. So the whole premise of the PSV just kind of sounded like a bit of a hassle, and also just this limited window of applicability and waves that I could ride it in. But Dave actually argued the opposite. He said that regardless of where you live, it opens up new options for waves, even beyond what you would ride a longboard in. He said that once you get it into the water and understand how the board moves, the amount of speed that you can generate from paddling, and the way the board swings once you're riding it, that you'll just start to look at the ocean differently. I had learned over the years working with Roger Hines and certainly in Dave's case, that if you can trust the shaper, You should probably just shut up and take their suggestion and so that's what i did i ordered the psv dave shaped the board he sent it down to the waterman's guild to have it glassed that's where i picked it up and once i got it into the ocean he was absolutely right the board is a total game changer to a degree that i had really never experienced before in episode 195 of this show it was dave's third appearance on the show He was talking about outrigger canoeing off the coast, and he's catching swells on those and projecting from one bump into the next. And through doing that, how he's had to use every ounce of his surf experience to outrigger and how there's so many more variables in the open ocean, and there's just so much more information out there to absorb and to learn. And then he started referring to surfing as just, quote, playing in the shore break. And this PSV experience feels like a small degree of that. It's made my shortboard experience and even my longboard experience feel so, so narrow. Not only in the style of waves that I ride those boards in, but also the style of surfing that I do on those boards. The PSV picks up so many new sensations and I've only really ridden it in small surf, mostly just small mushy surf that doesn't really have enough energy to shortboard in Or if the shortboard peaks are too crowded, I've taken the PSV down the beach to what looks like long fast waves, but I'm able to stroke in way earlier, set a line, and then the board just goes so fast that I'll make these crazy long sections. This past weekend in particular, we had a bit of swell, but it was this pretty walled direction. So it was large, but walled for most of the beach breaks. So I took it out to a deeper water beach break where the waves were just kind of capping and then maybe reconnecting into a reform once it got shallower and I would just catch whatever lump came my way and then not even really try to assess whether there was a shoulder on the wave just if it was a lump coming my way I would just swing and go And then I would just navigate completely different terrain than I'd ever consider riding on any other board. And I would cover vastly larger areas. Some of those waves reformed on the inside, some of them didn't. It was just kind of whitewash all the way to the inside. But the length of the ride was almost like riding three or four different waves all in one go. Certainly for the length of the you know distance covered compared to a shortboard, but also just in the style of waves that I would ride. Any one wave felt like three or four waves because take off on a mushy section, kind of go through a slopey section, reform into a fast section. So just a completely different surf experience. Needless to say, I'm a huge fan. I'll post images, but you can read more about the PSV on Dave's website, which is nowtro.com n-o-w-t-r-o.com he's great with email and he'll give you much more information than you even know what to do with and then of course don't forget if you want to support this show and this network of shows there's a couple of ways you can do it but the easiest way is a paypal button on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate and then you'll be entered to win that rocket wide in spine tech from channel island surfboards all donations received in the month of october are eligible i will pick a winner on november 1st and post it on my instagram stories the winner will only be responsible for shipping costs the other way to support this show which i haven't mentioned in a while is to simply rate and review it in itunes or whatever app you use that helps other people find the show imagine strangers who have never heard of the show who you can't access directly but they go into itunes and they type the word surf we will be the first one to pop up with the more reviews we have so help other people find it i thank you for that this has been part two of four of on boards with dave Parmenter. my name is david scales i forgot to mention that at the beginning of the show thanks for listening until next wednesday get back in the ocean share some waves and shred off